Hello, my friends. Welcome to Let's Talk. My name is Shay Marville. I am the founder of OurMindIsCalm.com. I am an entrepreneur, a philanthropist, a curator, a meditation teacher, and a mom. And I am also going through the wildness of this pandemic. I want to talk about the good things, the hard things, the sad things, and the great things. I want to talk about sustainability, healthcare, work, love, relationships, innovation, and technology. I hope you want to talk about those things too. And I hope that this space becomes a place that lifts us and helps us to think differently, to become stronger, to become more resilient, and to grow so that tomorrow we are stronger and we are better. So let's talk. Troy Jackson is a Black, queer, Muslim, multi-DNA'd performer, author, and designer. Jackson's performance work has shown at the Art Gallery of Ontario, the Inside Out Film Festival, and TIFF, Toronto International Film Festival. Currently, Troy is designing the second collection for his clothing label, Supreme Tamu. For more, let's talk to Troy. Troy, welcome to Let's Talk. So, let's talk. How are you after the American election, which we are all overly invested in? <laughs> I think, I believe, I believe I saw a friend of mine um, online. He's a Muslim gay uh, activist in the States. And he's like, I, we feel like, uh, he goes, from my point of view, we feel like uh, collectively, our, our, our community, um, the post-traumatic stress of the past four years has been lifted. Um, but also to as well to main, remain activated because we're going to have to be on this administration that um, is not what the young people wanted. I think the young people wanted Bernie Sanders and Stacey Abrams. They didn't want um, they didn't want what they got, but they got behind that party because that was a better choice. So I think I, for me personally, am along with that whole way of thinking that collectively, I think the world uh, that's thinking of more progressive ways of being did a sigh of relief. Um, also, too, as well, I think it was also a, a call out to queer, Black, trans, um, you know, um, our allies to really be activated within the Black Lives Matter movement, to really be activated into what we want the world to be. Um, Canada next door. <laughs> I was just reading a friend of mine is on her way back to moving back to Nova Scotia. And she said when she got the news, she was in a lineup at like um, a grocery store and she told the cashier, the cashier, like, sit over the loudspeaker, people begin to crowd around my friend, um, because they were so happy that this was the better, the better turnout. Really? So I, yeah, they, yeah. And so for me, um, I'm really um, happy with the turnout. Um, this administration is going to have lots of work to do, because of course, um, we all know that have been around or involved in politics, <clears throat> that, um, <laughs> <laughs> right? That there is, um, you know, people talk, but I'm interested in what people are doing. Well, so let me ask you this. Why why is it important for uh, a progressive movement to, to happen? Because isn't, don't you feel like things are so much better than they used to be? 
I think they are better, meaning that more people are aware of what happens. I would say this. Um, in Nova Scotia, I'm 50. In Nova Scotia, uh, I can say this to any Black person in Nova Scotia, and we'll laugh about it because we, I think Black folks deal with uh, trauma or microaggressions with laughter because that's how we survive. Mm. Um, the um, driving while Black <laughs> walking while black, shopping while black, breathing while black. We laugh about things like this because uh, we've been racially profiled in stores back there, um, that type of thing. Um, this morning, I awoke with some really beautiful, amazing news uh, because um, people out there that are listening probably are aware of the fighting and the violence and the burning of buildings that's been going on back in Nova Scotia, where I'm from, with regards to the Mi'kmaq community um, being able to to uh, fish right, um, and they tr- exercise their treaty rights. Well, the settlers built, burned down buildings and were not really um, chastised really much for that. Well, the Mi'kmaq folks just got together and they bought, they now are 50% owners of Clearwater, which is the largest <laughs> fishing processing company that they'll have to be dealing with. So the white folks basically <laughs> were burning out their employers. And so that's not going to fare well for them. <laughs> wow. I had not, so I had I, not heard that as yet. <laughs> yes. So, so, so Troy, tell me actually, tell me yeah. about what it was like growing up in Nova Scotia. Um, like what was your experience like? My, you know what? Um, I have really great memories of growing up in Nova Scotia. That's my family's from Black Loyalist history, uh, some Indigenous history. Um, we're from there forever. So I had a really, I think, great sense of family, a large family, lots of cousins. I have like 31 and counting because <laughs> I'm coming to the woodwork. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, 30 some odd first co- first cousins. And so um, I grew up with a really sense of storytelling, community, um, Black power, um, being proud of who you were, um, and also being... Um, to be um, the reason why I think that I'm such a good chatter <laughs> is because in my family, very large family of like really extroverted storytellers, amazing people, you have to um, really step up to the plate when you start to open your mouth to say something. So, <laughs> or to be heard, to be heard, to be heard, or to be yeah, exactly, to be heard. Um, you know, um, so for me, it was really great, um, but also too as well. Uh, there's still uh, embedded racism that's there. Um, there's environmental racism that's still happening and being talked about on a large, larger scale there. Um, and that means uh, where they would put, for instance, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, poison in the water or put, um, you know, uh, a sanitary, getting rid of your, your trash and whatnot. They put it next to black areas of town, of, of the, of the town. Um, also there's after the Africville story, which I mean, up until a while ago, that was like a dog park, <laughs> you know, all that type of stuff. So there is definitely in, embedded racism that I had to go through and deal with back there. And also to as well being gay from a small town, uh, had its own challenges too as well. And also being at the time, because uh, I'm Muslim now, um, at the time being from a small sort of Black Baptist community, there was a lot of do's and don'ts and I'm a twin. <laughs> so if I'm in a town of twins, so there's very much, um, uh, you know, eyes on us. And I say this too as well, that if you're Black and you've been from Nova Scotia for a long time, you're related to everybody and everybody knows your business or they make it up. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like coming to Toronto and meeting 
people, folks from all other parts of of Africa and Caribbean who were black? It, is it a very different uh, type of experience than than the one you grew up in? Yes, or I think no? I, I think I think I think that um, hmm. I'll say it this way. Friends of mine that are from uh, the diaspora, that are from the continent and from the Caribbean, they often say that when they move to Canada, that's when they were considered, quote unquote, black. Yes. Before that, they were were from so-and-so. They were from blah, blah, blah. I remember in Montreal in the 90s when I was there and I walked into a Cuban bar and I said, oh, my gosh, there's all kinds of black people here. (laughs) <laughs> and the guy that was the guy that was with was more light skinned Cuban. He looked around the he he looked at, around the room. He goes, "Where I used to see Cubans." Fascinating, right? fascinating. So how we identify, I think, is very um, can be geographical, can be on the continent, um, that type of thing. Um, you know, um, so it's a different. It's a similar conversation once we get here for how people perceive things and how there's a blanket statement of you're black. Therefore, I think negating, taking away your difference or somebody just thinks you're, quote unquote, just black. <laughs> right. And they don't, rather, they don't get to know where you're from. And therefore, your cultural experience, your history is sort of wiped away and it's sort of blanketed like white. Right. When you say somebody's white, what does that actually mean? Like what background are they Italian or are they, well, are they well, Polish, are they Russian? Are they, you know? Well, that's actually really that's a really interesting um, sort of direction to take the conversation, because I think there are a lot of blanket statements being thrown around right now. And as a person of of black descent, as a person of color, I uh, and that's lived in three continents and has a very diverse family. I understand in my bones that blackness is very diverse, and mm. and and so is whiteness, right? So yes. so yep. it's sometimes the conversation about um, privilege, white mm. privilege, uh, w- white culture, black culture. Mm. It can be confusing for people. <clears throat> excuse me, because. Yes. Because they don't actually see themselves as part of this larger, larger group. They see themselves as unique and or independent of that group. Most definitely. I mean, I remember a couple of years ago, I was um, chatting to an author named Danny Ramadan and he's Syrian. And so I'm. I made the mistake of referring to him as white in more European. He said, excuse me. He goes, I'm not white. I goes, I consider myself Syrian. And I said, oh, right, <laughs> I'm mislabeling you because he does he does present more white. And so, um, but you take away people's experiences to result because they might not perceive themselves as white European or, you know what I mean? Or um, their family might be very diverse too as well. They may be the, the light presenting part of their family that's very brown or very black actually. So I think when we take assumptions into uh, a conversation about race, I think we have to be very um, cognizant of the way that other people identif- self-identify somewhere else. I'm not saying that they actually trans, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, a, like um, take on another race. I mean, that they might be from a bit different background. Like, for instance, some of, my, some of my cousins, and I'm sure some of your family too as well, present as very, very white. But their father is black. Right. <laughs> Blacker than me sometimes, you know what I mean? Right, so right. so that's just the DNA that happens to, um, you know, uh, the visual part. But 
the rest is for me, how, how are you brought up? Are you aware of different things? Um, are you aware of your history? Are you proud of your history? Um, I remember having a conversation with a cousin of mine who presents as white, and she was saying uh, how black folks need to stop using the excuse of racism to keep them down. Mm. And I said, respect. I said, respectfully speaking, I said, I'm glad that you're aware of your background, you're proud of your background, and da 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 da. I said, but when you walk into a, when you walk into a room, right? I said, you present as a white woman. I said, you will never have that experience of me or somebody mm. darker than me walking into a room and being perceived a totally different way just by virtue of what we look like. Mm. Right? Right. And that's that strips into the thing about white privilege. And I often say this because some people get offended by that term. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, yeah. what? It, it's a system that we're referring to. It's not saying that everybody white has had privilege through life. That would be foolish <laughs> to even right. say something like this. What it's saying is that you've never been treated by the basis of your color or systematic racism with the, with the context of where you're working, or et cetera, et cetera, um, that has never held you down. You can move from your small town and just everybody would assume you're just the white man that moved that moved to a new town, right? Mm-hmm. Not the, oh, there's a black guy living next door to me. Right, right. right. And all the stereotypes that come with with that. With all of that. But but don't you think also that we uh, are exploding stereotypes right now? Don't you think that things uh, are are better than they were 30 years ago? Or do you I mean, I know I know a lot of people say that in some ways things are are not better. They are, they are the same. It's just, it's, it's, you're not supposed to do certain things and, but they're still very present. I think it depends what demographic of people you're speaking with. You're speaking to younger people, totally different answer. You're speaking to 50 year olds, totally different answer. You're speaking to 70 year olds, totally different answer. Um, you're speaking to somebody older, totally different answer. I think you, it needs to be a total sort of collective conversation about what what is for instance for me with black lives matter and that that whole movement and the um the policing of black rage and black angst and black trauma um was very sort of triggering for me uh, as far as um the conversations that were happening and people being very blanket statement about the whole thing Mm. um for me i think that things are of course, getting better because it's 2020. We have way more technology that's making people heightenedly aware of the things that sometimes Black folks go through. Right. So to say that it, it's the same, I think it'd be uh, remiss of us to say that. I think too, as well, if you talk to, for instance, I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day and her uh, daughter corrected her because uh, and it was like this. She's uh, Latin and she was speaking and she's like, the black woman, the black girl over there. Da, 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 da. And she's like, mama, that is very racist. And she's like, what do you mean? She's black. And she's like, that was her being black uh, important to what you were saying about her. Ah. And she's like, oh, Fantastic no. question. Fantastic question. I, she goes, I should have said that woman over there because she was the only one standing there. And she's like, so she had, we had a whole conversation back and forth. And she goes, and I learned something very valuable that day. And this is somebody who's like nine, 11, excuse me. And so, um, so for me, I'm like, 
the younger folks are getting it. They're having more cross conversations. Um, the classroom that I grew up in the seven, in the 1970s, 80s is not the same demographic. And when you look around the classrooms in Canada, they're not the same, depending on where you live. More urban areas, you're going to get a plethora of languages spoken and faces and parents and different family makeups and everything. So to say that it's the same, I would say no. Um, I would say but I would say systematically, a system does need to be dismantled and rejigged to fit all of us. And how do you do that? I think by, um, I was part of a conversation. I am in the fashion zone at Ryerson University. Um, I'm now currently enrolled in a program called the Recovery Cohort. Mm. And that is to fortify um, bridging businesses and uh, a little bit more uh, established businesses to thrive during COVID-19, thrive and strive and to uh, be resilient during this time. So for me, um, in the first meeting with everybody that got picked to be a part of this program, there was a young woman and she was talking about a, a, a call out she was a part of. And her uh, call out was, it was um, to reimagine um society uh, that was not policed like it is mm. and a society's different models of different societies about how we could really include all of community to thrive and strive and to be better well when the call came back and this is like artists politicians whoever wanted when they culminated the different ideas they didn't come up with one or two society models that were different they came up with 52 different societal models that were based upon thriving and striving of community, different communities in different ways, right? Brilliant. Yes, very brilliant. I'll have to send you that link. I'll have to send you, find that information and send you yes, links. I think yes. you'd be really interested to read, to read that and be a part of that conversation. Um, because I think what tends to happen is when you get, you know, you get older, you get a more uh, or get more used to the way things are quote unquote, or should be. And we forget to think about outside the box. Um, my three-year-old is very uh, dexterous on the computer, knows a bunch of stuff, does a bunch of things, computer. I'm like, wow, how'd you even do that? Right. <laughs> right. Um, so I think the younger folks have different and better ideas and they look at the world a bit differently because their access to information is very different than what it was 30 years ago. And so I think that how do we get there? Uh, a cliche together. And also I think we get there to get together by pushing boundaries, by having those really uncomfortable conversations that we do need to have to move on by breaking down that word, assume <laughs> for mm. what it actually means um so uh, you can break it down on your own <laughs> right but it does it does make um when you assume something you um you're you're probably going to bring in uh, preconceived notions that are totally wrong i think stereotypes only exist on page or when they're spoken i think once you talk to somebody stereotypes fall by the wayside because stereotypes are based upon um you know generalizations and i don't think people any one person on this planet is a general person. Precisely, precisely. I think also, I, I I wouldn't say that I think all young people are are right. I wouldn't say all older people are right. I just think what you're no. saying about conversations mm -hmm. are really critical and experiencing life together. And I think one of the things that a lot of 
people are seeing now is that you know race and sexuality um you know or gender uh, specifically class these are you know social constructs and mm-hmm. they come with these definitions that allowed us to live together in a certain way or not live well together and they're based on power dynamics and as we talk more and as we break things down more and as we ask you know why is this this way and why is that that way and and as we try to create a more equal society it it really is clear that a lot of these things are not true they're not mm-hmm. valid they're not relevant and and I find that exciting I I do find that there's there's more choices now and um and and I, and I think we have a long way to go because I think the the baseline structure uh, you know structure that we're fighting is about about power and domination <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I don't. We we're, yes. um, we're we haven't you know haven't quite broken that piece down as yet. But I think mm-hmm. I think we're on our way. I I one of the things I really admire about you is how you've been bringing your 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 activism and really it's about inclusion. I think with you to to building a business and I'm so I'm curious about how you do that. And I'm also curious about how you are uh, doing that right now as we move through the pandemic. Well, um, like I mentioned before, I'm in the recovery cohort, and that's with the uh, Creative Innovation Studios at Ryerson University. And that has been a blessing and a really uh, way to really be inspired by local and thriving businesses uh, in Canada. Um, I've always been... um, a great sort of rah-rah person <laughs> with regards to the talent. And I say it in our own backyards because, um, you know, we're always, I, I think it's Canadians sometimes too as well. We're coming out of that for sure because we're celebrating our own and they don't have to move to Europe and we don't have to buy it back at import prices. They actually <laughs> can stay here and thrive. Um, I think that um, um, for me, Personally, it was very important for me to, um, if I was going to be doing clothing, that it wasn't going to be adding to the uh, degradation of our dear Mother Earth. <laughs> that mm-hmm. we actually, it's it's it sustains us all. Um, so I couldn't do the same thing. So part of this program I, I'm in is about uh, ethics. It's about sustainability. It's about local. Um, personally, for me too, as well, by virtue of we can see with the, this pandemic, a bunch of companies that uh, clothing companies that were thriving, but maybe they stretched themselves a bit too thin and they're not thriving anymore. They're going bankrupt. Um, I think we're going to flip back to seeing way more small business and also too, as well, because people are a little bit more localized these days with travel and whatnot, people are going to have to get those goods locally. And so for me, um, business uh, locally has to be strong and thriving especially in times like this, because then you don't have to depend on so far away for the production pipeline to work. So you get your goods. Right. So you can um, get your clothing. So you can get your masks made. At the very beginning of this pandemic, we didn't even 
we weren't able to make our own masks because what? It all had to come from someplace else. Mm. I think that um, leaves us open to, um, you know, uh, having to catch up if something like this is to happen again. And I think, uh, unfortunately, I think with the way the world is right now, I think we're heightenedly aware, I think now of how things like this, like viruses and, and bacteria and whatnot is being transmitted now that we have to be a bit more aware. Um, uh, these high touch surfaces, for instance, that um, are now being cleaned more often. I laugh when I say like, wow, shouldn't those high touch surfaces be, have been cleaned that way before all this? but you know we just we go through our life and we just sort of think that everything's fabulous until it's not because we're not being aware well we're learning we're learning we're learning we're learning and we're trying to play catch up constantly constantly why why did you decide to create a clothing line for kids well um i was um looking around out there for the clothing my kid was gravitating towards. And mm. my kid was gravitating towards color, texture, and bling, bling, blam, blam, and, <laughs> and print, right? I wonder so why. I'm I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was looking around, I'm like, wow. So we were finding all the really beautiful stuff that he wanted to wear, excuse me, in the, in the girl section, quote unquote. And I think I'm one of those people that thinks that clothing should be genderless and people should wear what makes them comfortable and what makes, what makes them feel good. And what makes them feel good might be totally what I don't think looks good together, but that's not my business, Mm -hmm. (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, I think clothing is expression. I think um, clothing uh, can lift you up when you're having a bad day, uh, all that types of stuff. And you can tell a really beautiful story about yourself through clothing. And so I I wanted to make sure that my kid had more access to clothing that was locally produced, that had a really good story in the stitches of how that was put together uh the respect that the you give to the person that is and you pay them properly when you make a piece of clothing that's made locally um i think i would boldly like to proclaim that fast fashion is over Mm. and that you need to actually buy more locally that means you're going to have to spend more for your clothing you'll be surprised at what goes into um, making the clothing you will be surprised at how much coordination time effort and um skill takes into sewing that t-shirt you're wearing that you got for five dollars which somebody's getting paid maybe two cents (laughs) to make when they should be getting paid properly for their time so i want to make sure that i wasn't going to replicate that to my company and so that my child could see me um doing something that i've always wanted to do but doing it in a better way so that way it can be more of a template. So if he chooses to take this company later on uh, and do something else with it, that's great. Uh, hopefully, if not, that he doesn't want to do this, that he's more inspired to do things ethically and properly because he's seen his Baba do it. He's seen his Baba express himself in a way that's not, um, you know, degrading the planet. Did, did uh, your parenting style uh, influence the decision to create the clothing uh, line, or did you decide to create a clothing line prior to becoming a dad? <laughs> well, um, hmm, I had always, I had always been dabbling in fashion for quite some time. Yes, that's whether that's whether I've had things in like uh, you know Vancouver fashion or um, have done zipped up a few things. And I'm like, oh, I'm gonna zip up some skirts today. I've done that, you know what I mean? And they're yeah. great. And friends of mine still have them. And they wear them, you know, that type of thing. I was always interested in fashion. Um, 
for me, when Tajali came along um, and blessed us with his being and disruptiveness and <laughs> wonderfulness, <laughs> and um, it definitely influences the way that I design now. Not to say that it was an emphasis for me wanting to start my company, but definitely when he came along, it really sort of shaped my way of thinking of legacy, my way of thinking of, wow, I really can't um, daydream anymore. If I really want to do this, then I have to put my effort into this. Mm. So that was more about the defining moment for like, I'm going to do this seriously. I'm going to put time into this. I'm not going to just keep on thinking out, thinking out loud or saying things and not actually doing things. I, like I said before earlier, I'm interested in what, I'm doing, but also what other people are actually actively doing. Because we can all talk until forever. Yes. <laughs> we can say blah, 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 or dream or whatnot. But one thing too as well for COVID-19 is a reminder again for me. But also um, years back, I had a really bad accent and I almost died. And so you're, when you come back from something like, like that, like a near-death experience or almost death, um, the breath you, you take that into account that it's breast. You take that into account that it's way more, um, you know, that importance of breast. You take into account that uh, the importance of people in general of, of the time that we're here mm. on this planet. You, uh, you, you take more, um, you, you know, day by day things are way more um, focused because you're acutely aware of the fact that yesterday you were alive and thriving and because of a silly accident you easily could have been just taking your last breath and the last thing you would have saw was your stairs Mm. (laughs) what what happened what happened i uh was over exhausted and just was used to um being um the yes person or the yes i can handle it yes i'm super yes i can keep on going and anybody that gets caught up in the Toronto go, 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 um, knows this. And so I was saying yes, yes to everybody except for taking care of myself. Mm. And when I fell backwards down my stairs and cracked my skull from ear to ear and had my eardrum um, basically, um, you know, exploded. (laughs) Um, And then I woke up three days later uh, from an induced coma, intubated, and uh, with uh, these membranes around my legs that were helping keep the circulation go, um, I knew that I was um, supposed to be here for something else or that I hadn't finished what I was here to do because, wow, that was, I was shocked. I, when I woke up that way, I was shocked. I was uh, in lots of pain because intubation is not fun. No, no. <laughs> and um, uh, also to as well, very... Um, aware of the fact that I had been given uh, a second chance. Yeah. And it's not, it's not, it's not the first time that I've had a near death experience. So I would say by that time, probably my third chance, I'd also been almost gay bashed before and I survived that. And also as a child, I fell uh, probably about a story and a half and survived that too as well. So, yeah. (laughs) So, so you, you're a cat with nine nine lives, but let's just do let's just let's let's you know that be the last one, and we keep going. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That, so, so where do you like? Well, that that makes me also think about your capacity around resilience, because I mean, you you just kind of blew over it, but you you just mentioned <laughs> that you were beaten up, 
for for being gay? No, it wasn't what? beaten up. I wasn't. I didn't. It didn't get to that point. What had happened was I was um, being my fabulous self. This is like uh, probably the early two thousands, probably, and it was in Vancouver. And, Were you performing? Uh, Were you performing? No. I was just out mind my business. I used to go to after hour clubs just to dance. And so I wasn't a part of that whole drug culture of the after hours. I would just go dance because I love music. Yes. I love music. And so um, I was out dancing, going out to an after hours one night in Vancouver. And it was down by, I remember Terry Fox Memorial to my left. Yes. <laughs> um, down, down, you know, I'm walking down, on, down the street. And I remember in the back of my head, a friend of mine, years before it said to me, be careful if you're ever walking down this late night down by that memorial because I almost was gay bashed by white supremacists. Well, that's what happened to me that night. And so uh. this guy that was walking in the middle of the street trying to get hit by cars, I was like, whoa. And so I didn't walk to that side of the street because I'm like, I wanted to avoid this energy. I kept in my side of the street and just kept on walking my, my business. This man came behind me with, um, with, with another friend who wasn't, seemed like he wasn't into what the guy was doing, but he was along for the ride. Yeah. For the ride or or whatnot, or trying to deter his friend, but I don't know. Right. And so what ended up happening was a, a yelling match. Uh, he asked me something, do you have a cigarette? I said, no, cause I didn't smoke. He's like, well, why don't you smoke? And I said, cause I don't smoke. And then it flipped from there. And why don't you smoke it with the N word? Uh. And blah, 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 blah. And I was like, wow. And so I went, I was like, needed to, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep on walking. And so in the back of my head, I was like, keep the same pace, don't run. And so I was listening to his footsteps speed up and I would keep the same footsteps with him, but I wasn't running, mm. right? Because I didn't want this panic that was coming over me to really take over. And I wanted to keep my wits about me. And so basically there was an inter- interjection of another person into this whole scenario. I got the person, I said, hi, they knew me from the after hours at another club. I said, hi. They said, what are you yelling at me? And I said, you're going to understand in a couple of minutes, I have two white supremacists following me and they want to kill me because they mm. just said that. They just said, uh, you know, they said, uh, uh, N-word, what do you think in the last five minutes of your life? <gasps> and that's exactly what I was, I, people that have been in situations like that where they think they might get killed, I think actually do do a flip through their head, through their, through their mind really quickly. It just happens automatically. And so that's actually what I was thinking, but not in the last five minutes. I wasn't thinking I was going to die, but I was thinking of how am I going to get out of this? Yes. What's going to happen? If something happens to me, then I know this guy is going to be have to tell my family because they'll come, they'll, they'll come after him. Like I was thinking all these things. And then he got into my head and I was like, whoa. And so what happened was um, this person intervened and said, well, what's going on? And then this guy was like, oh, his demeanor changed. He's like, he was, he's the one causing problems. He was saying a bunch of stuff to us, blah, blah, blah. The guy's like, what's going on here? I don't want to be a part of it. And then as soon as the guy hit the corner, all this nastiness came out again. And then uh. I just had enough of it. And I was like, okay, let's go fight. And his friend grabbed him off and that was it. Right. And so it was a situation. I, it's not the first time in Vancouver that I experienced uh, violence directed at me. I'm a very sort of open faced person. Um, and so sometimes when you're an open-faced person, uh, people gravitate towards that when they have some anger issues. So <laughs> that, that is, I mean, you're, you're um, revealing it in, um, in a way that is, you know, you're, it's very light and soft, but the, I'm, I'm stunned. I'm stunned by I this soft, story. I was, 
I was traumatized for a long time. I still don't to this day, if there's a large group of, mind you, just to two people, but if there's a large group of rowdy white men, mm. I will change my route. I will walk to the other side, keep my wits about me and stuff like this, because also too as well, um, in conversation with my twin brother, um, he reminded me of a time which he's, he's he, I mean, he's had lots of things, you know, yelled at him, said to him, you know, him minding his business, people yelling for stuff in cars, he yelled me yelling stuff back, the car doing the screech of the tires, him having to run, him having falling down on ice. Anybody that's been in Nova Scotia or Halifax in the middle of winter knows you can slip and fall. Well, he slipped and fall, and he's like, I came up running. He came up running mm. and kept running. And he, he survived in it because if he did not keep running, he would have been beat up by them three white guys chasing him down to get that so and so. Just mind his business, going home from work. So, okay. <laughs> so, oh my goodness. I, I yeah. wish we had much longer to discuss this, but, <laughs> but you know, we started off the conversation and I said, well, haven't things changed a lot? Mm-hmm. And, you know, th- so then we started talking and riffing and, and mm-hmm. you've just shared something that is about the unsafety of the pub, the public space, uh, mm-hmm. depending on what you look like. Yep, and most definitely, and and like, how is that resolved? Was were were those people uh, arrested? What like what, what like you like no, what? There was no resolution that way. What I said before stands true. I think black folks and people of color and indigenous folks are speaking of our home on native on native land. Um, we survive through humor. We survive through um, making fun of situations. Not that we make light of the situations, but if we if we took to heart every time our armor uh, took a dent, mm-hmm. if we cried every time our armor takes a dent, if we got upset every time we heard the M word in a room and somebody forgot you were there, mm. well, <laughs> I wouldn't be here laughing, right? You know what I mean? And for me, I always remember these words. And this is my my lovely mother. I always remember these words. She's like, you might as well laugh as cry. Mm. And that's a choice you can make. Not to say that we shouldn't be crying or that we shouldn't be um, uh, um Expressing uh, you know, our emotion, expressing our, our emotions and our anger and stuff like this or whatever. But I much rather just laugh. And I mean, uh, um, I wanted—I uh, mentioned—I shared with you that I've fallen, and that's a thing for me. I've fallen down my stairs too little before, um, and at the end of the stairs, my husband Alfred caught me basically coming down the stairs. Bump, bump, bump. Um, I fell really weirdly, and then he's like, "You." It's like I passed out. Yes. And then when I came to, when I came to, I was laughing. And he's like, are you okay? Are you okay? For 45 minutes, I laughed. <laughs> <laughs> because it was a way that the trauma was released from my body yes. that, uh, that I could only deal with at that particular time was laugh through laughter. Right? Well, I, I don't, th- I, I, I understand it. I don't think, you know, everyone copes that way. But I no, do think that not. I do think that laughter and storytelling is a yes. part of relieving uh, these traumatic experiences. And mm-hmm. I think, but I do think that they are so common, even yep. even though 
they shouldn't be. And it reminds me of a situation I had, and that this is many, many years ago. My daughter, who's now 16, was just a baby. She was a few months old, and I was, you know, enamored, um, as you are when you just have a baby. And I'm still enamored with her, but for different reasons. And <laughs> she's, she's really, really, yes. really interesting and beautiful. <laughs> um, and always telling me what's what. But... Um, I was walking across the street uh, not far from our house, and and I, I've told this story before, but I was crossing the road, and I was really, I was going very slowly, because I was just, you know, talking to her and pushing the stroller, and uh, this car came up uh, to the stop sign, and uh, and I guess because I was taking a long time, and, and he, the gentleman or the man in the car was um, an animal, um, he he yells out the N word and says says move it, and mm-hmm. and I my reaction was so strange. Mm-hmm. I stopped in the middle of the road and I said to him, "I'm not that. You're that." And then mm-hmm. I kept walking. Now I don't yes. know why I was not afraid. I don't know why I didn't think. Oh, I'm gonna. You know, I don't know. I, that was my reaction. And then I was, I, as I walked away and I was like sort of in shock that this, this mm-hmm. happened to me and he drove off, I, I soon just sort of went on with my, with my day. And I, you know, I shared it and I talked to people about how this thing happened to me. And I'm, you know, how, why is this still happening in this day and age? And then like so many stories, it just disappears. But, mm-hmm. but a couple days later, this is the funny part. Uh, mm-hmm. If there's anything that could be funny about that, mm-hmm. I'm at the grocery store and I'm in line and I realize, <laughs> like, I, and my baby is attached to me and I, you know, yeah. in one of those bumbo, not bumbo, the 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 whatever it's called now that you carry, yeah, carry. I, the, yeah, I and 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 the man is in front of me mm-hmm. and he looks at me mm-hmm. and I look at him and I did think to say, you know. I guess mm-hmm. I guess we're the same or something. I know, you know, I didn't know what to say, but I I just yes. stood there, and all of a sudden, I I was like standing with my my legs sort of apart, and I was take I took a firm stand, and I just yeah. felt fearless, and he knew it was me, and I knew it was him, and he didn't know what I was going to do, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do anything other than stand there and say, I'm here. Mm-hmm. And and that was in a strange way that was extremely empowering, empowering yes, to is. me. Um, I I know that some people would say, well, that I should have done something else, but but that was nope. my response. And I yes. walked out like you would have thought I got a million dollars when I walked out of that grocery store, rather than spending a hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> I walked out of that store like I I you can't tell me. What I am. Well, it it reminds me of the story just reading about Nelson Mandela and how he was in a restaurant one day and there was a man and he was with his bodyguards and he was eating and there was a man that looked nervous uh, across the table. He invite he said he got his bodyguard to invite him to come sit with him. He went, had his meal, the man was still very nervous, da 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 had his meal, left and went on. 
with his day, right? Yes. Uh, the bodyguard asked him later on, why was that man so nervous? And was it because you're meeting you? And da, 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 da. He's like, no. He's like, that man was one of the prison guards. <sighs> when he, he used to urinate on my head. Mm-hmm. And he thought that I was going to, he probably thought that I was going to basically flex his bodyguards on him or do something to him because of how powerful he was. He's like, and I will not ever be like that. Man. That's right. That's right. Because he could have, he could, he could have, he could have, by this point in time, exacted revenge, da, 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 but that's not who you are. That's yeah. not who I am no. as well. Um, I think too, as well, when you uh, take on, not to say that I haven't been angry or that I'm invalidating black anger about these issues and not that I wasn't angry at the time that some of these situations happened. I'm saying that um, when we as people of color take on that type of energy, it's actually not ours to deal with. Mm. We need to heal from that and we need to dump it <laughs> where yes. it needs to be or put it where it needs to be or excommunicate it from our energy fields and go on because I believe in living in black joy mm. um, and radiating that because it's so much more powerful vibration than what somebody's putting on you. Yes. Um, that's a, resi- that's a resilience part. Uh, I come from very, uh, I said before, I come from very, um, you know, uh, black multi-DNA indigenous uh, multi-DNA, family that's had to survive a lot of different things to be here yes um i give thanks to my ancestors i give thanks to my family and my mother and my dad for being who they are and for being um you know uh, proud and loving of, of of who their now sons are um without them standing in their truth and of course, they've had to go through their own things with, with regards to racism and, and whatnot. Um, I have a very interesting conversation with my parents. My dad presents as more like a light-skinned brown black black man sort of thing. Mm-hmm. My mother presents as um, you know uh, lighter-skinned black, depending on where she is. But for the most part, if people don't know us, um, they would think that she's probably a white woman. So. Mm-hmm. There's definitely very conversations about 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 race that definitely happen in our family. Um, I say that. Um, Black folks in their DNA are survivors. Mm. Um, I say black folks, and I say this too as well, not to be like we're still meaning that we can't do anything about it. I say this. We haven't run that far off the plantation. (laughs) Yes, things have changed. Yes, things have changed. However, I think the big con is that um, all the things that these evil folks learn from selling people for business, mm. Mm. <laughs> then, when it's, then when it's abolished, they get remit, they get paid from all of us through our taxes still <laughs> from that. Um, I think that um, the, the um, magnifying glass on that type of energy and us getting off that plantation is where we are now in 2020. We're, we're having way more activated conversations about all of this stuff and also to where we're saying, we see you. So that's our trans black family. Yes. We see them. Yeah, we we're see. acknowledging them. We see we them. See you. Yeah, we see we you. See, we know you. We, 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 you know, we're, we're acknowledging more of those pieces of, of the puzzle. Yeah. And I'm really proud of older folks, which are coming into this new language, coming into thinking of people. In, of uh, I saw this too as well, where... Um, uh, a man was making was making making fun or saying like oh 
they, them, blah, 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 all this gender, blah, 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 all these words, and they have to be careful, and da, 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 And the grandmother in the room says, respect costs nothing. She's like, you call people how they want to be referred to. Wow. Room silent, auntie, granny has spoken. <laughs> the, the mic is dropped. And on that note, I want to thank you because I think that is that is a very uh, liberating and brilliant note to end our conversation on today. And I, I thank you. I thank you for this juicy conversation and for your time and for your bravery and your courage. I wish you well-being for yourself, your baby and your family, your beautiful husband. All right, my friend, we'll talk again very soon. You You come back to the pod. I will. Let's talk some more. And I'll do a little shout out like this. It goes, I could just sit around making music all the day long. Friends, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Talk. I hope you enjoyed it. We are so grateful for your time. And I want to just thank my amazing team, Stacey Maynard and MCI Studios. We would love to hear from you all. So subscribe at Shea Marvale Podcast, Let's Talk.com and follow us on Instagram at Shea Marvale Podcast. Looking forward to hearing from you. Be well until next time. Bye for now.